Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and this week we are joined by Bethany Allen Ibrahimian of Axios to talk about the Chinese Communist Party's ambition for global influence and the human rights atrocities against their own country's religious minorities. This conversation comes as we at the ERLC are advocating for the U.S. government to counter China morally. Chelsea Patterson-Sobelik and I were glad to connect with Bethany because she has covered and reported on China for many years now and brings an understanding of these issues that is really helpful. Bethany is the author of the Axios China newsletter, where you can read her reporting every week in the convenience of your own inbox. Before joining Axios, she served as the lead reporter for the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists' China Cables Project, a major leak of classified Chinese government documents revealing the inner workings of the mass internment camps in Xinjiang. Bethany also previously worked as a national security reporter for the Daily Beast and as an editor and reporter for Foreign Policy Magazine. She holds a master's in East Asian Studies from Yale University. But before we talk about what's happening in China, I want to say a word about what's happening here in the U.S. and tell you about a resource from ERLC important for this moment. We are just weeks away from a presidential election. And this comes at the end of a really tumultuous year. Public trust is frayed and much of the rhetoric is really overheated. A friend of mine here in Washington said back in January of this year that he thought this 2020 election would be unique because of the moral stakes partisans would try to place on it. And I think that's proven right when we look at the arguments being made by many Republicans and Democrats. And so all of this leaves many of us Christians wondering, what is the best way forward? And not just the best way forward in the voting booth with that choice before us, but even more fundamentally, what are the best ways for us to engage these conversations honestly and faithfully as followers of Christ? And how do we talk about these issues in a way that maintains our relationships with our friends, our family, and our church communities? Engaging in the public square is important, but our current environment sure does make it difficult. That's why we at the ERLC produced a new resource designed specifically for church leaders to navigate all of this. It's called the Courage and Civility Church Toolkit. The Courage and Civility Church Toolkit features sermon outlines and small group guides to help Christians engage in the public square in a way that fears God, honors those in authority, loves all of our neighbors, and invites everyone to trust Jesus. This toolkit gives pastors and church leaders a helpful path to walk with their congregations through the things that truly matter most and shows them how to process all of this in a chaotic, polarized moment. You can download your free copy today at erlc.com slash church dash toolkit. That's erlc.com slash church dash toolkit. Bethany, thanks so much for joining Chelsea and me today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So I want to jump right in with a question in Axios format. So one thing that Axios has brought to the public conversation is news distilled into, as you say, smart brevity. And it's often the case in your newsletters, on your podcasts, uh, that you're talking about the one big thing about a particular topic. So I want to start off this this conversation uh, by asking you, What do you think is the one big thing Americans need to know about China right now? 
China's committing a cultural genocide against uh, an ethnic minority, and the world is basically hardly even blinking. And that matters because this shows the kind of government and the kind of ideology that is driving what will be the most powerful country later in the 21st century. Okay, could, could you say a bit more there about, you said they, they will be the most powerful country in the 21st century. I feel like there's more there that Americans need to understand about, particularly the Chinese Communist Party's ambition to understand and really make sense of some of their governing decisions over the last decade. Uh, we're going to talk more about the genocide and the atrocities that you mentioned, but help us understand what their ambition is. So under Xi Jinping, he has enshrined uh, a vision for China. He calls it the China dream or the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. And what that means and what he has explained that to mean is a China's return to the center of the global stage. That idea didn't start with Xi Jinping. Chinese leaders have been looking at this idea, you know, trying to grow in, in strength for decades. I mean, in 1949, when, you know, the communists won the civil war and Chairman Mao became, you know, the, the leader of China, he had a goal of overtaking Britain in, you know, three years in, in, the, in the Great Leap Forward um, in the late 50s. So this has been sort of an ongoing project of the Chinese Communist Party. But under Xi Jinping, they've finally had both the material conditions and the kind of visionary leader who is helping to make that into a reality. So, Bethany, um, thanks to your reporting and others, there's been a growing focus of the Chinese Communist Party's treatment of Uyghur Muslims and other religious minorities in Xinjiang, such as um, camps, forced labor, etc. Where, where did this start and why and how does China um, justify their actions against the Uyghurs to the watching world? I think it's helpful to understand China as, um, as an empire rather than as, you know, um, just a, a simple nation state. So if you look at the more recent, China's more recent history, Ming Dynasty, Qing, especially the, the Qing Dynasty, the, the Qing was able to expand China's borders into more or less what they are today. And the Qing Dynasty was approximately 1650 to 1911-ish. Uh, and so that's when the, they, you know, through military conquest, uh, you know, expanded um, to, to, you know, through Xinjiang, which Uyghurs refer call their homeland uh, and and some other parts, and so in the process of doing that, they acquired these territories that had indigenous peoples who were not Han Chinese. Now, more mainland China also has non-Han Chinese ethnic minorities, but in, in Xinjiang and in Tibet and in Mongolia, you have ethnic groups who at various times have had maybe their own their own states or their own sort of centers of power, their own centers of cultural production, and have a very strong cultural and ethnic identity as a people group. And the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, there's there's about 10 million Uyghurs. They are a Central Asian majority Muslim ethnic group. And they definitely count as a group of people who have their own idea of what their own history is, have a sense of this being their own homeland, and that their, their homeland was under, you know, had been brought into China through military conquest. And this idea has never gone away. And so from, uh, you know, even the early, some of the earlier years of the 20th century um, in the 
you had there there were some uprisings. You had uh, a couple of short-lived Soviet-backed republics in various parts of Xinjiang uh, before 1949. And when uh, China ended its more totalitarian period in 1978, there was a bit of a flowering among in Uyghur culture as they kind of reached back to that cultural heritage, reached back to their Islamic roots, and really re-embraced who they were as Uyghurs. It was a period of relative openness. What we've seen, um, especially since 2009, when there were some race riots in, in Urumqi, which is the capital of Xinjiang, is that the Chinese government has less and less and less tolerance for that separate cultural and ethnic identity and space. It's, it's, a, it's complex. It's, you know, it's, it's not simple. Um, there have been some low-lying, you know, separatist sentiments there. There has been occasional episodes of violence. When it really got I, to the, in the mind of the Chinese government, when it really got unacceptable was certainly 2009 with the race riots, but in the, with the rise of the Islamic State, when they began to fear, uh, you know, this radical Islamic ideology coming in. But it, and so they have couched their crackdown in Xinjiang since 2014 as counterterrorism. But it's incredibly important to remember that this is not a campaign against terrorism. There is not and has never been a significant terrorist threat in Xinjiang. This is the Chinese government trying to impose a total assimilationist policy to consolidate an empire. So what has that looked like in uh, Xinjiang as the CCP tries to impose that on the Uyghurs? Well, what we've seen since around early 2017 is, well, well, it started before that, a couple of years before that, when Xi Jinping and other high-ranking um, high CCP officials wanted to come up with a a more long-term solution to to truly end what they to wipe out what they saw as this problem, uh, to rip it up from the roots, and so what developed was a system of concentration camps. They don't call them that; they call them vocational training centers, but they are concentration camps, and more than a million, up to two million Uyghurs and other ethnic minority Muslims have been put into these camps, cycled through in, in some way. We don't have a good sense of how much of the population has cycled through these camps, but they have a capacity between one and two million. Um, and there's there's dozens or hundreds of these facilities, depending on how you classify them, around Xinjiang. You know, it, it seems that the Chinese government was thinking that they could get, get away with that without the international community learning about it because they didn't talk about it publicly. And when there started to be reporting on this from survivors coming out of the camps and fleeing China from um, satellite imagery, that was really important. It was total silence from the Chinese government, total denial. Until in, I, I think it was, um, so the first the first reporting on the camps was like, in like September 2017, but we didn't have a sense of scale. And then January, February, March 2018, and it wasn't until August 2018 that the, that the Chinese government finally sort of opened up the floodgates. And they were like, yes, we have this amazing program in Xinjiang that we're really proud of. It's a vocational edu- you know, training and it's counterterrorism. And we think it's a great model. And we'd love to sh- show everyone else in the world how to do this. And we've had wonderful success and we don't have any more terrorist attacks. And all the Uyghurs are happy and dancing and they're great and we're doing really well. And that has been a pretty standardized like propaganda response 
but to talk more about what they're actually doing. So they have these camps, but that's far from all. They have blanketed the entire region in a fairly dystopian, um, if you want to call it like a techno-totalitarian system where there are, you know, facial recognition, surveillance cameras everywhere. There's, you know, many checkpoints. They install you know, spyware on Uyghur's phones so that they know what websites they're, they're visiting. They have extremely tight internet controls in Xinjiang, even tighter than in the rest of China. And then they have, you know, swept up Uyghurs into these mass detention camps based on a bunch of random behaviors, but also behavior that appears to be just regular Islamic practice. Do you grow a beard? Do you pray five times a day? Do you go to a mosque regularly? Do you, are you a Uyghur intellectual who writes about Uyghur history? These are the kinds of people who have ended up in camps, along with a bunch of people who were maybe, you know, at the the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, There have been quotas for the amount of people that need to go into the camps. And that has been accompanied also by, you know, mass campaigns um, to make, uh, you know, basic practice of Islam and basic expression of cultural identity more or less illegal. As you particularly mentioned, the CCP's effort to to remove this people group and this religious minority and just uproot them, root and branch. I, I was thinking about some of those images, satellite images that we have seen out of China of a community where uh, Uyghurs have lived, that the image of the before and after that the parties just come in and just demolished entire what, what looked to be entire cities. I'm not exactly sure the scale on some of on some of those images, if if folks have seen those floating around, and maybe I'll try to find a few and link them to link them in the show notes. Can you explain what the government would be doing in in those kinds of situations? Can you explain what's happening behind those satellite images? Sure. So the the concentration camps, if you will, can be cultural genocide 1.0. Now we're in cultural genocide 2.0, which is mass demolition of uh, any kind of cultural heritage site, whether that's a graveyard, a shrine. Uh, you know, to someone considered a, a Uyghur saint or a, like a Sufi saint, demolition of mo- mass demolition of mosques or a conversion of mosques into a, a non-religious facility, um, and mass demolition of traditional Uyghur neighborhoods, such as in Kashgar. And the purpose behind all of this is to physically erase reminders of who the Uyghurs are, where they come from, and any reminder or emotional attachment to their own cultural history and their own actual history and religious history. And when it comes to the neighborhoods, that's part of a, a, a program to, to break their social capital, to, to, to break their social bonds. And in addition to the, the physical destruction of their neighborhoods and their, their traditional neighborhoods and their relocation to wherever they're being relocated to. There's also now something we're coming to have more understanding of. So it's, called, it's called their labor transfer programs, essentially coerced labor, mass coerced labor. So as people are being released from these mass concentration facilities, these mass detention camps, or just people in the countryside, they're being, they don't have a choice. They're being put to work in factories where maybe they're being paid, um, but they're not there. They don't have a choice. They must go. And in many cases, Part of the point of the, a major point of putting them to work in these factories is that they're in a very regimented, almost militaristic type environment where they're being subjected to um, extremely tight surveillance, uh, indoctrination um, in, in the in the evenings. And most importantly, they're being taken away from their families. So parents taken away from their children, 
mothers sent to other parts of, of China, you know, hundreds of miles away, away from their families, and the children put into orphanages uh, or state-run care facilities where they're in a Chinese, a Han Chinese Mandarin language, cultural and linguistic environment. This kind of family separation policy is exactly what was pursued in numerous colonial contexts in the past, such as in the United States, uh, in our own genocide against Native Americans, we very actively pursued specifically this policy, taking children away from Native American parents and tribes and putting them into you know, orphanages or other facilities here. In Australia, you saw that. In Canada, I mean, this is a pretty tried and true and very successful way to erase over time an ethnic group's language and identity. So, Bethany, you have spoken of several different ways the CCP is committing cultural genocide. And I want to zoom in even further and discuss how the CCP is um, specifically targeting and persecuting Uyghur women. At the same time, they've been loosening their one-child policy for Han Chinese. They've been tightening their restrictions for Uyghur women. Can you tell us a little bit about how they are treating Uyghur women um, and how the CCP is attempting to eradicate future generations of Uyghurs? Yeah. Um, so you, you laid it out exactly correctly. China has long had a one-child policy, although there were you know various tweaks around the edges, um, including, for example, ethnic minority status. Ethnic minorities were typically allowed two children, in some cases more children. Um, but as uh, you know, China's um, population is leveling off and their authorities have started worrying about a, a looming demographic winter, they're actually trying to encourage births, but not in a uniform fashion. Only amongst Han Chinese people or people in cities, people that they view as having a a high quality, so gao su which is like kind of a scary, scary concept. Uh, but yes, now they have. Now they're actually there is a, a widespread policy now in Xinjiang of forced sterilizations and forced abortions, and this is being done against women in the mass detention camps and also outside of the mass detention camps. And there's been extensive reporting on this from the Associated Press, from the Washington Post, and from some independent um, researchers and scholars whose work has been gone, gone through a peer review process based on government documents, like Chinese government documents, right? Local government documents about the policies that they're pursuing based on, you know, Chinese language news reporting and based on interviews with, um, you know, with Uyghur women who have left Xinjiang. And so what you see is a pretty clear policy where women are afraid to have children because they're afraid of being punished. Um, and they're they're afraid that if or if they become pregnant, they're afraid of being found out and having a forced abortion. They're afraid of being beaten. Um, they're afraid of just various kinds of punishments surrounding birth. And this policy has been dramatically effective, if you will, from the point of view of the Chinese government. Uh, according to the Chinese government's own statistics, uh, the you know the birth rate, in Xinjiang fell dramatically uh, in the, the past couple of years. I don't have the statistics, statistics off the top of my head, but I, I feel like it dropped by 40% or something. I mean, just an enormously dramatic drop. And, and again, if you look at other genocides in history, and I was fairly recently reading about um, what Christopher Columbus and his troops did uh, on the islands that they were, one of the things that they did was they, they, they separated 
um, husbands and wives and worked them so hard that they didn't have time to be together and stopped having children. And this was one of the, the many factors that led to um, a, a, the total end of, of those native groups there. And this is, I mean, essentially the same thing that seems to be happening in Xinjiang. I don't think that the Chinese government wants to erase Uyghur genetic DNA. Like, I don't think they want to actually wipe out the human bodies entirely. What they want is to break any sense of separate identity beyond maybe just like, I'm Uyghur and that's it. No, no loyal, no other loyalty to, to any other kind of um, identity or language or religion. I, I guess a natural follow-up question to the discussion we've been having is how has the U.S. government responded to these atrocities? It's it's been a process. Um, you know, people uh, who have been concerned about Uyghurs in Xinjiang have been concerned for a long time. I mean, I have been following personally very closely since around 2012, and I was extremely concerned then. So it's it's always been a strong um, area of concern. There have always been repressive policies in Xinjiang, which is the reason that you've had some, you know, the, the race riots, a long history of what, what Uyghurs experience as a kind of oppression and also economic marginalization. They're not hired for jobs, you know, they're economically marginalized. But what was so deeply frustrating for people like me in 2015 and 2016, where things were really, really getting bad, but not yet genocidal, was that no one was doing anything. No one was saying anything that the U.S. government had not issued statements. You know, there, there was just no one was talking about this on the international stage, and it was so discouraging. This administration has been very vocal on Xinjiang, and they have become increasingly vocal. I remember the first time that I heard um, an a high-ranking administration official mention what was happening in Xinjiang, and that was Mike Pence in his Big China Policy speech. I think it was October 2018 at the Hudson Institute. And he said, and he mentioned what was happening to Muslims in Xinjiang. And I was really glad to hear that. And the Trump administration has taken a growing number of measures to try to push back against that and to, at the very least, try to weed out U.S. complicity in that, in our supply chains, uh, and in our, you know, in some of the connections that we have, and so you have seen um, the use of the entities list in the Commerce Department, which you know come up with a list of you know these companies or these local or you know regional government departments or you know party departments, party bureaus are complicit in in the human rights abuses, and um, so U.S. companies are not allowed to export you know to to these or to have like commercial ties with these entities. So that's the entities list. And we've seen uh, a growing use of, of sanctions. And this is where U.S. Um, action can really be biting and can have a real effect. And we first saw that used in a more limited way with some sanctions on individual CCP officials who were involved. But what stunned me, and I mean, I think I was speechless for like three days, was when um, the U.S. announced sanctions under the Global Magnitsky Act on the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps, the XPCC, which sounds like some you know niche entity that no one has ever heard of, but it's actually a very powerful and um, rich, it's a, it's a paramilitary organ colonizing organization in Xinjiang 
um, that has long been a sort of a, a major force that has allowed the CCP to take control of Xinjiang and to take control of its economy. And it controls about 12% of Xinjiang's economy. It has vast interests in natural resources. It operates cotton fields. It operates ports. I mean, it's just this massive, sprawling thing. And to, to, to sanction it could possibly be, and I've spoken with people about this who aren't sure, but they think it might be the single largest sanction on any entity that the U.S. government has ever issued. So it's wow. really, yeah, it's and, wow. and it, like nobody knows because it's the XPCP. No one's ever heard of that. But when I first heard that they were going to do that, I was just like, you're going to have to hire 25 people to help you with enforcement because it's so opaque. That was a really key thing to do because the XPCC is directly complicit in the op. I mean, it it runs concentration camps, right? And and it runs. It's involved in a lot of industries that touched or you know affiliated with or touch onto the forced labor schemes. And so we're starting to see a more powerful movement away from, for example, Xinjiang cotton. Now, to give you a sense of of how much this matters. Approximately half of the world's cotton comes from China. Uh, it's it's either it, not quite maybe forty percent, and it's it switches off with India as being the world's largest exporter of cotton or producer of cotton, and about half or a third to one half of China's cotton comes from or touches onto supply chains that go through Xinjiang. So this is an enormous amount of cotton. Are you right now wearing something? made with Xinjiang cotton or that goes through some kind of supply chain that runs through Xinjiang? Probably. Do you own stuff in your closet? Guaranteed. I guarantee you, you do. So this is something that touches all of us. And it's the kind of thing that a consumer boycott cannot touch because you can't boycott clothing. You you cannot boycott all clothing. And if we don't have a sense of clarity as to, you know, how the supply chains are, any supply chain made in China, any item made in China is potentially tainted. So that's where you have to have government action to force companies to find to do due diligence, to find out who their suppliers are and whether or not it touches their supply chains, and then to uh, delink themselves from those supply chains. So we're just at the very beginning of that process. I mean, just about two or three weeks ago, H&M announced that they were going to be no longer sourcing Xinjiang cotton. They have known about this problem. H&M has known about this for like a couple of years, but it took this big action, these big actions on the part of the U.S. government for them to finally do something about it. My wife works in fashion and she has recognized for a long time and has often brought it up to me, the different companies that are the worst perpetrators of fast fashion. And she works for a company that that works with artisans in the developing world. They create jewelry, a company called Noonday Collection, uh, trying to counter that uh, and use people's supply chains for good. And so when H&M made that news, that rocketed around her her world as well as, oh, interesting that they would finally do this. Are you encouraged by that as somebody who's watched these atrocities that should we be encouraged by that? Yes, we should definitely be encouraged by that. Um, you know, that the, the U S government and, you know, is, is taking these actions. I mean, it, it's not easy to do that. I'm sure that U S industries are not happy about it. It's going to take them a lot of work if they have to move supply chains to different parts of China or, I mean, it's, it's a giant complex, twisted, opaque thing. And I mean, 
how many thousands of, of like person hours are going to have to go into it to, to try to figure out, you know, where these supply chains are. It's, it's really tough. I am. So I was, I was stunned. I never thought, uh, I truly never thought that the, the U S would, would issue that kind of a sweeping sanction. We're also seeing the EU. Um, so Ursula von der Leyen, who is the president of the European commission said in her state of the union address, um, last month, a few weeks ago, that she will be supporting a European version of the Global Magnitsky Act. So just to clarify, the Global Magnitsky Act was, I think, passed into law or implemented in 2016. And it's a sort of an expedited way and an easier way to implement sanctions on government officials and other entities that are complicit in human rights violations. Um, And before, I mean, this year, I I think maybe the Global Magnitsky Act in the U.S. had been used against, like maybe on one occasion against China. Now it's been used multiple times. And so that is, you know, it's finally the U.S. government putting its money where its mouth is on human rights, but it's only a start. When it comes to China's behavior in Xinjiang, you know, sanctions on the XPCC is not going to stop them. All it does is try to reduce U.S. and American complicity in that. They have faced, in reality, very few um, repercussions on the world stage. The U.N. has not condemned, like the official U.N., the U.N. Secretary General has not condemned them. Um, you know, there hasn't been a U.N. resolution passed condemning them, although there have been warring, warring letters of support or condemnation of their behavior. And the reason is simply a matter of power. You know, China is incredibly powerful. When the U.S. has done things that in the past um, that the world community strongly opposed, such as the um, invasion of Iraq, no one was able to stop us because we were so powerful. China is rapidly uh, acquiring that status where it's very difficult for them to stop. And this is within their own borders. I mean, China's not about to invade another country. I think they're, they're not powerful enough to do that yet. But within their own borders, the cost of doing what it would take to stop them is so high. And the U.S. and Europe are so embroiled in our own struggles right now that it, it's, it seems like the will is just not there. Bethany, in, in closing, I want to ask you about one more area of of China's influence on uh, on American products. And you've done fantastic reporting on China's influence in Hollywood. In early September, you had a piece up at Axios, which I will link to in our show notes for this week's episode. Disney's Mulan was filmed in Xinjiang amid cultural genocide. Tell us, tell us about what what China. Uh, what China has been up to in Hollywood. Yeah. So the the key to understanding a lot of China's power outside of its own borders is the power of its markets and how the Chinese Communist Party has learned how to weaponize access to its markets to silence criticism. And Hollywood is one of the very best examples of that because the Chinese domestic film market is swift is is the second largest in the world. It's lo- has long been the largest growth market and is poised to pass the U.S. perhaps this year, maybe next year. This means that for production studios, they must consider the Chinese audience. However, uh, China, you know, has a quota system for ha- for foreign films. That means that any film that's allowed in has to be explicitly allowed by the Chinese government, and they do that on you know in a variety of ways, but also through a, you know a system of censorship. So the, the the motivations here for Hollywood executives are pretty clear. 
know, if you have a movie that clearly crosses one of the Chinese Communist Party's red lines, such as making the China making the Chinese government look bad or evil or incompetent, or um, you know, presenting Uyghurs or Tibetans and their plight in a sympathetic light, or presenting the Hong Kong protests in a sympathetic light, that movie is not going to be shown in China, and it's not going to have access to you know the hundreds of millions, literally hundreds of millions of people who go to, you know, see movies um, and cinemas there. And it's, you know, more and more you're seeing movies where a significant chunk of their total, you know, revenue, like a third of it or half of it, in some cases more than half comes from the Chinese market. So it's a, it's a pure matter of dollars and cents. Um, and so what we've seen is, I believe that the last time a movie, a Hollywood movie presented China in a negative light in some way was 1997. So it's been about 23 years since there's been like a major Hollywood production. And that's a very fascinating phenomenon to think of this huge uh, megaphone of U.S. soft power that has, you know, trumpeted our values and our flourishing and messy culture around the world. And China has effectively borrowed that boat. There's a phrase in, in Chinese, communist, um, Chinese Communist Party sort of jargon borrowing a boat to go out on the sea. The, the you know the Chinese film uh, industry doesn't have the capacity or the ability to make a film that portrays China as heroic and you know whatever and have that film become a global blockbuster. They don't have that capacity yet although they're I think they're working on it. But they have been able to borrow the boat of Hollywood to at least cancel out the narratives that they're afraid of. You know that they saw, for example, during the Cold War, were were used so effectively against the Soviet Union. I mean, Russian accents to this day. You know, in a movie, you're like, oh, they must that person must be a bad guy. You know, it's so it was so overly effective <laughs> right. in right. equating um, you know the Soviet Union or Russianness with villainy. And the Chinese Communist Party wants to avoid that, and they and want to avoid you know a variety of other things. And they've been extraordinarily effective in that. Well, one of the one of the movies that you've mentioned in in some of your other reporting on that is uh, is uh, World War Z, and how even the narrative of that movie from the book to the movie changed because of China's influence. Am I understanding that right? Absolutely, that's a great example. Um, so, in the book, which I have read, and I, I love that book, uh, the movie's terrible. But the, read the book, and I forget exactly when the book was published. I think it was like mid two thousand, so it was after SARS. It was after the SARS epidemic, and the author, he's you know, he has later said that um, he had the zombie apocalypse. So the outbreak began in China, and so in the book, it, there was a local cover up of the outbreak in China, and that's how the the zombie outbreak spread throughout China and then throughout the rest of the world was because of a you know, deeply flawed political system, and he said he wanted that. To to be a kind of commentary on their political system because of SARS, because that's what happened with SARS. Uh, this sounds really familiar to us right now in a, a post-COVID world, doesn't it? Well, in 2013, so well, the movie World War Z was released in 2013, but in that plot, it was North Korea. The, the zombie outbreak originated in North Korea. And it wasn't in China didn't play any major role in the film. And so this political commentary was excised. You know, it was it was removed, and it it was actually supposed to be an important and, as we can tell today, deeply relevant political commentary. Now, World War Z is a terrible movie, uh, but like, you know, this is the kind of thing where, where China is censoring Hollywood and, in some ways, censoring the American imagination. 
by because movies are a great way, one of the best ways. It's called mass media for a reason to get feelings, to get emotion, to get stories out to a mass audience who wouldn't necessarily, you know, have the time or the energy or the ability to be reading up foreign affairs articles and all of this. But it can, you know, convey to them these larger narratives, and they're, um, you know, that's that's been censored. There's a silence there. Wow. Well, Bethany, thank you so much for uh, joining us here on Capital Conversations to share about your reporting uh, over this really critical issue, uh, particularly for our audience of Christians to be aware of as people who care about human dignity, who care about the love of neighbor, because Christ commanded us to care about our neighbor as to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so I just really appreciate the way in which you have uh, you have focused on what China has been up to for many years now, and then distilling that down for us here on Capital Conversations. Where can our listeners uh, keep up with and and follow your work? You can definitely follow my work uh, at axios.com. Sign up for my newsletter, Axios China, and you can follow me on Twitter at Bethany Allen EBR. We will link to all of those in the show notes. Bethany, thanks again for joining Chelsea and I today. Thank you so much for having me and for caring about this issue. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you found today's conversation with Bethany intriguing, I'd encourage you to go to ERLC.com slash China, where you will find our recent webinar to watch. It's titled China's Rising Threat to Human Rights. It was moderated by Travis Wusso, uh, and he was joined by Dr. Moore, Ambassador Brownback, who's the U.S. Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom at the State Department, Nuri Turkle, who is a Uyghur himself, and he's a commissioner on the United States Commission for International Religious Freedom, and Rushan Abbas, who is the founder and executive director of Campaign for Uyghurs. This conversation was really helpful to understand how the issues that Chelsea and I talked about with Bethany today affect real lives. Rushan tells the stories, and so does Nuri, about how China's human rights abuses are affecting them and their loved ones. I'd really encourage you to check out that webinar at erlc.com slash China. And I'd also encourage you to sign up for Bethany's newsletter at Axios to keep up with her latest reporting on China. As for this show, be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations wherever you are listening so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. I promise this really does help others find our show. And we want as many people to join us around this table for these fascinating conversations with friends of ours here in Washington. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll look forward to being back together with you next week.